and what I saw between Gnoa and Capoeira, these elements of similarity. But all these were really sort of created in this new spaces with all these things underneath them, as say slavery, religion, different countries, different cities. And I just thought it'd be great to highlight just points between the two. People see the documentary, you'll see similar similarity. Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasimi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, Thinking Historically in the Present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and how their project speaks to our current moment. Over the next half an hour, we're going to be finding out what makes their work important and why it's relevant to us. Today we have Hassan Hajjad joining us in the studio in Sharjah. Hassan is a participating artist in SB15 and based between London and Marrakesh. A little bit more about Hassan and his work for our listeners. Hassan's photographs and films have been known to capture the spirit and complexity of North African Arab society in a way that challenges the Western gaze. His images combine traditional Moroccan elements with contemporary pop culture to comment on ways in which different cultures have been viewed throughout history. What are the ways in which identity gets stereotyped and commodified in visual media? How can artists devise new forms of representation? Can art draw on diverse pasts to express solidarities in the present? These are some of the questions Hassan's work leaves us wondering. But let's hear more about this from the artist himself. Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, Hassan. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I was uh, talking recently about the the moments we shared together in Marrakesh as we were doing our uh, Vogue Arabia photo shoot. And it was really interesting to see you in your element, in your context, and how you develop and produce these photographs with your brilliant team. Yes, that was um, a great moment. I think we'd been in touch before, and I remember he was coming for one day. Yeah. <laughs> I extended. You asked yes, me to extend. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You extended. And uh, yeah, it was a beautiful moment. And it was also, for me, I think it was the first time that we've met and known each other for on and off before. I think that was really a broken point to, to see you. And I felt it was a comfortable space. Uh, and I saw the real horror more, more than before. Um, yes, it was an interesting to, uh, to have, have you there as well uh, in my place and you could see the, the way I work. Thank you for that. It was really a um, beautiful, yeah, beautiful <laughs> moment. I met some wonderful people. Um, you were also part of a show at Charge Art Foundation about 10 years ago, curated by a colleague of mine, Shannon Ayers. Uh, Chaos into Cla- the exhibition was called Chaos into Clarity. I remember you showed your work called Le Salon Paris, an installation that set recycled objects in a souk-like backdrop. I later invited that piece to the Lahore Biennial in 2020 in a different element with the seating. Um, it was such a shame you couldn't make it to Lahore. And Sharjah. And Sharjah, <laughs> yes. You didn't Charger. make it to the yeah. Sharjah one. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was great because I think it was my first time doing something in Sharjah. And it was a good piece because I think it was, people can actually, you know, use the place and sit on it. Well, it's wonderful to have you here with us in Sharjah. Thank you. I'm really happy on me, actually, as well. And especially as part of our 30-year celebration of the biennial, a big part of this biennial is the chance to observe art practices over long periods and see how they respond to different moments in time. So thank you so much for being a part of this. I say thank you for inviting me for this, because this was something uh, I wanted to do such a long time. 
So Hassan, in your photos, you blend elements of Moroccan motifs and Western pop culture. What was it like growing up between Morocco and the UK in the 70s and 80s? How did those early cross-cultural experiences influence the kind of hybridity we see in your work? Well, it was a bit of a shock. You know, growing up in Morocco, uh, it was sort of, you know, the bright skies, barefooted, uh, a, a sense of freedom, I suppose, happy childhood, even we didn't have much. And there was a sense of uh, kind of happiness uh, in there. Moving to London, uh, it was very sad at the beginning because it was, uh, you know, I always said this and I'll probably say, no, it's almost like living in Technicolor and moving to film noir. It was like this. So it was a bit depressing for me the first six months. I didn't understand, didn't speak the language, didn't understand anything. We lived in one room, you know, five of us as a family. How old were you? I was 13. So it was, um, you know, just that a break where you're leaving something they just got to understand and then put into this new thing where it was uh, totally different. But also, you know, London in the 70s, it's not where it is now. You know, I mean, it was another world. Um, it seemed to be more foggy than the nurse. I think people were still using coal at that point in time. Um, so it was kind of tough at the beginning because uh, even my education, you know, when I left uh, Morocco, I used to speak French or write French. I used to, you know, read and write Arabic. And then when I arrived to London, they had to put me into the middle of a secondary school. And within this, they had to, uh, they put in the morning between nine and 12, they had to send me to uh, an English uh, language school. So, which meant that they, I did that for two years, which meant Anything that was in the morning, I missed history, maths and stuff like this. When I did finish, when I finished my two years of English language, I went back full time to my school, secondary school. I think it was the the fifth year and I really, they couldn't do anything with me. So, because I didn't do any classes. So they had to put me, I could read Tintin, I could read Tintin books or there was nothing I'd learned. So my education really went to zero. Um, and uh, by the age of 15, I sort of really left school, to be honest with you. Um, so it was tough. It was tough to, to meet people. And then I think during that time, um, my first two friends were English. And then the neighborhood I'd lived in, there were no Moroccan community. The school, there was no, you know, I was the only Moroccan kid in the school. And somehow, I, I think... We became more friends with friends uh, that became friends from the Caribbean, Indian, Bangladeshi, but South American. And I think where it was, we all had one thing to share, which was foreign in this new, new, uh, you know, new land. Um, and that again was a bit tough. But you met some amazing people. Uh, definitely, not just amazing people. Learn about new cultures, you know, because. Um, even at that time, it was difficult because there was no, there's nothing for us to go to, mm -hmm. you know. So we literally had to hang out outside a church somewhere like that. There was no kind of food we wanted to eat. The places we wanted to hang out. So you know, I end up somebody's friend yeah. in their bedroom with five, ten, fifteen of you hanging out. And also, it was all kind of um, you know learning about the the English culture. And I think the only thing that got us through things like sports. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was, it was a rough moment because I say it was, it wasn't somewhere to, to, to go and things I think for foreign kids where the church would do in the evening, uh, what they called the way that you can go and play pool or, uh, because the community center, community center, yeah, yeah because yeah, yeah. They, I don't think they had this before in, yeah. in, in England. So then they realized there was this new immigrant 
things happening and the, by hanging out in the street, you get more in trouble. So mm. then they started to do this. Then you started a fashion label called Rap uh, in London in the 1980s, uh, which, as we know, went on to enjoy cult status. And also uh, now, maybe you could also talk about Andy Walu. So, yeah, so I mean, it's funny because now I can look at these two brands in a different way. Rap was me in London uh, expressing myself with my friends. And Andy Wello was probably my presenting the North Africa Arab region. So it's two different, you know, it's uh, two different types of thoughts. With rap, when I say rap, it was, I think, 1984. Rap was just kind of becoming, you know, it was new in the scene. You know, it was like the new music. It just kind of started, it's like becoming a new culture. So the reason I called it rap, there was three different elements. It was the music and also you wrap yourself with clothing. And then I decided to put the two dots between, you know, the RAP, which came down to real artistic people because at that point I started to meet friends that were doing sort of more, um, um, you know, sort of photographers, musicians and stuff like this. And this period of the 80s was really important for people like myself and my friends that were foreign because all of a sudden we realised we were in this place. They weren't going to give us anything, so we had to really create something for ourselves. So my university and by having rap as a shop, I started, it became a meeting point for all my friends because it was in central London. Um, and this was a really a, a great moment for me because then I became a, an assistant stylist for a friend of mine called Andy Blake, Zach, Zach over our friend. He was doing, he's just starting to do music videos. So I would do casting, location, food. Um, so this was really learning around me. And as I was doing the shop and I was starting to do, I was, became uh, doing lots of underground parties. So this was kind of, having things around me to do with space, people, promoting music, art, fashion. I even did a few, uh, created a few shows in my shop and was called Norm Caesar Photographer. So I think this was really the beginning of me get before becoming an artist. This was like learning process, learning time for me. Andy Wello really came later. Andy Wello came, I think probably from late nineties when I started uh, showing my my work, you know, there was the word of like Andy Warhol, you know, yeah. the Andy Warhol, and you know, I had to take that if it was a compliment or you know become secondary. And uh, I think um, every then it started to become like a any uh, journalist I meet and do a, an interview, you'd be like Andy Warhol of Marrakesh, <laughs> so it became like almost like a stamp on my back. And around two thousand, I was in um, West London in Goulburn Road which is a Moroccan street. And I just come out with a print of my work, had some of my work printed. And I met um, a friend of mine, Yusuf, and Rashid Sahar, God bless him, who was a big singer, in you know, Algerian singer yeah, based in France. And we sat there with her having lunch, and he said, what do you have there? And I showed him my work, and he was like, Andy Warhol. And I said, Rashid, I know that everybody says that. And he went, man, Andy Warhol. <laughs> and when he said this, I thought, this is the perfect word I can use. Yeah not to take it serious and twist it around. So I decided to, to take the MA and just say Andy Wallu because it sounded like Andy Wall. Yeah. So it started around 2000, the idea. And then this became, then around the same time I was doing um, uh, projects with Morad Momo yeah. from uh, Paris and London. And he had this old space that he went, first time I had prop, I heard prop up, he wanted to do a restaurant for a year by using my Le Salon, because I was doing Le Salon in, in galleries and places like that. So I decided to do this with him, and I needed the name for the, for the project. 
and this was a perfect name. I and had yeah. no idea it was Rashid Taha. Yeah, was yeah, it was really Rashid beautiful. Taha. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, God bless him. The last album he did, he, there's a song called Andy Wello. Oh, yeah. okay. Maybe we should have a listen to that. Yeah. You're well known for your portraits of friends and fellow artists. Most recently, you showed a series called Rock Stars in New York. What has been your most memorable shoot besides ours? And yeah, Mark exactly. Asher? Well, first with us. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think really there's, there's too many to kind of try and to pick one. It's almost like somebody was your favorite song, your favorite yeah. film, your favorite food. And I always think this is an unfair question. You know, with the rock star, it became really like a performance, you know, yeah. like when I'm shooting, sometimes I have musicians, uh, you know, I want the sitter to kind of uh, have a memorable day of it. And, you know, all I'm looking at this kind of project is I'm setting up a stage by having a backdrop. I'm dressing up like a rock star and then they're kind of performing for me or the, the viewer that are going to see the picture. So this really started probably from late 90s, I started to in more of the kind of studio style of shoot. And it gave me also um, opportunity because I had all these amazing friends around me. And it's called My Rockstar because growing up in London, uh, My Rockstar image for us was, a, a, you know, an, a European or an American with long hair with a leather jacket and dark sunglasses and the guitar. So it's like, how do you, how do we, how do you take that name and own it in a different way? So that's why I call them my rock stars. And it could be a boxer, graphic designer, a local kid who was doing bad and started doing good. And I just had this richness luckily around me that I can really pick and approach and trying to create this. And this is really, it looks like it's going to be like a all my life journey because it's um, all my life body of work that will continue. Yeah, it's endless. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with photographer, designer, and filmmaker Hassan Hajjaj about his project for the 15th Sharjah Biennial. So I remember how this conversation came about. Uh, we were in London at your studio, shop, yeah. workspace, yeah. and went off for a Vietnamese lunch during COVID. Right. And uh, I remember you telling me about this project you've been wanting to do for 20 years. Oh, yes. I'll explain the project now, but at that moment, I thought, wow, this is thinking historically in the present. This makes complete sense for the biennial. So I'm, I'm going to describe the project to the listeners. Um, Hassan has made a documentary film which traces the historical similarities between two older art forms that continue to have a rich presence today. A Moroccan performance art called Ghnawa and a Brazilian martial art called Capoeira. So for his uh, SP15 project, Hassan followed a Gnawa master in Marrakesh and a Capoeira master in Salvador to bring their distinct practices into conversation with each other. So at first, this might seem quite different from your other work uh, yeah. as it's a documentary, but I know that you first put Gnawa and Capoeira together at the Festival de Suaria in Morocco more than 20 years ago. Can you tell us a bit about these two different forms and how you began to draw the parallels between them? Um, so this really probably started, well, I started practicing capoeira in, I think, 92, something like this. The first time I really discovered capoeira was in Brazil. I was traveling in Brazil in 1989 and I was in Rio and I remember going, I went to one of these clubs uh, with a friend and a DJ put this music on and I, I was just amazed. And I remember walking up to the DJ and I said, oh, what's, you know, do you speak English? You speak English? I said, what's, what's this? He said, capoeira. 
And I thought it was the name of a singer. So when I left from there, the whole journey, I couldn't remember the name. I was trying to find out what is Capoeira, you know, the, the song Capoeira or the singer. And then when I got to uh, Porto Seguro, which is up by here, I met a street kid that I became friends with. And then one day he just done a movement, you know, like some acrobat. I said, well, what's that? It looked different. It was a normal acrobat. He goes, Capoeira. I said, Capoeira, what's that? And then he explained to me. Mm. So when I came back to London later on, as I said, around, uh, not uh, end of the 80s, when I found the teacher, I started practicing. So I discovered this whole new world um, of, uh, you know, sort of something. And it was very unknown then. I mean, since then, it's become quite popular and people seem to know, obviously, social media and stuff. I sort of wondered why I was, you know, why did I it sort of, it took me to Capoeira to do this. And then I realised when I was younger, it reminded me of Gnawa in the sense because opposite where I was living when I was younger, there was a master that used to do the ceremony nights. And as a kid, you go in and out. So then I realized it really had something similar, but very different at the same time. So I really started developing to this. And the more I was practicing and then more I was, you know, sort of, because I've been documenting Gnawa from the 90s as well, all the masters, which I've never shown the work yet. And then the idea came because the, the yeah, travel to Brazil and became the Brazilian culture in London and, and started to understand more of it, I thought, let me see if I can do a show in Morocco to fuse these two, you know, two, two different groups to see what can come out of it. So it really started as a thought. I approached Gnoa Festival as I got to know the people and then two years later they called me and I said, all right, you've got the show, you have an hour and a half, hour and a half to do a show, you do what you want to do with it, hey, you want to present, but we want an hour and a half on stage. So it really started that way. So for me, when I invited all my friends from Brazil to come to Morocco, that was a beautiful thing because they really sort of adapted quite quick and they really got on with Gnawa and then I realized there's a lot of similarity. And then from there it becomes, it became an idea to, how can I do a doc documentary on this? So it was really from about 2002 when the, the uh, 2001, sorry. So it was li literally 20 years ago. Yeah. When, when, from, from last year when we saw, when, it was last year when we met yeah, talking about this. COVID, yeah, during COVID, yeah. It was also really uh, interesting to see how close you are with the musicians and Marwan working yeah. with Anawa because they were performing in your space yeah. as well in Marrakesh. Yeah. I would say from, uh, you know, the, the, there was a festival started called the Essaouira Gnawa Festival in 1998. And I was going every year, you know, but I was shooting all the, you know, all the cup wrists and the, the Gnawa Masters. And through shooting, I was going to a lot of ceremonies. And then I had the, uh, the show I did there in, in with the um, Gnawa and Cup where I brought them to London. We did Dave Stewart uh, from Rhythmics. He opened up a new place. I invited us the same show to do for the opening of the space. And we did somewhere else. So it sort of just grew from there. Um, and as I say, as time went by, it just kind of happened to, to get to this point, us, you know, making this, this project in a sense. Yes, the performance was really unique in how it brought together these two traditions of Capoeira and Gnawa live in the same space for the first time. Shall we take a listen to a clip from the performance? <laughs> Oh, 
Tell us a bit about what it's like behind the scenes. What was the process of filming and interviewing the masters and shooting the performances like? You know, originally when we met, in you know, having an idea for 20 years, you have time to really think of everything you want to do in the film. You know, you're not rushed. And originally it was a totally different aspect because he was getting, supposed to be filmed outside. That was the first thing. Uh, it was to do with the spaces, the markets, they will perform, they do restaurants and the ceremony. And luck, and then when we had this meeting, it was COVID. So I had like, when I remember when we said, let's do a Zoom call and, you know, start to kind of work out with your team. So I had to really sit down and rethink the whole idea, which everything had to happen indoors. So the process started that way. I had the moment of, um, in, in, in the first thing I shot was the canal because I was in Marrakesh. Um, that was a bit easier because I was there and, and you know, everything sort of gelled and it was still tough because we had COVID. Normally we would film the, the ceremony at night time from 10 until dawn. But because we had curfew, we had to finish by 8 in the evening. So we had to really create the Riyadh as a night time and pretend it's the evening. Uh, so that was kind of challenging with this. And also we couldn't have more than 40 people in the same space because of COVID. Salvador, it was, um, you know, it was a little, I only had a short period of time there and it sort of started slow, but it really gelled quite quickly in the sense. Um, doing interviews, was, uh, I had all my questions, you know, because I, the same questions I asked in, in the, for the Gnawa, uh, Sita, the musicians and everybody else, I wanted to ha have the same questions. So I took my brother who uh, speaks Portuguese and he really helped me out on, on the interviews. Yeah, COVID was a real struggle. I think I got a little criticized for pushing the biennial by two years, but we all needed it. And I think it was the best decision uh, that we Definitely. made. But um, yeah, the the struggles of especially trying to film in different locations and travel restrictions, I think you struggled with that. Yeah, well, I think, sorry, actually, this is a good point. So in Morocco, it was like very tough. You know, I mean, I had all my paperwork to film outside, but it was restrictions. And then I wanted to film with the drone and the drone in Morocco is very tough to, to get the paperwork and he comes with a person who literally controls the drone. So we had three locations I wanted to film. The first one we filmed, we went to the second one and we got this uh, thing where we couldn't film there. It comes up that is, you know, it's... it's uh, Restricted. It, yeah. yeah. And the third one, the same thing. And I only had him for one day. Brazil... I was worried the same thing had happened, but Brazil, they didn't even care. I mean, I had the police in front of me, you know, I had the drone going along the street, the, you know, human being level, and there's a policeman there, and I thought, they're going to stop us. We had no problem in Brazil with this, so that was great. And I have to say, having seen a little bit, there's some beautiful shots in the film. Thank you. Well, this is my friend Omar as well. I had you know, a good team with me. Yeah. They belong to different continents, both Gnawa and Capoeira. They both have a mystical aspect to them and they have roots from the slave trade. So why is it important to talk about these histories and cultural forms now? What I saw between Gnawa and Capoeira was, had these elements of similarity. From, for example, you know, the Gnawa, they under, you know, become Muslim, which is more Sufism. And also Gnawa, in hindsight, there is an African music. It was born in Morocco. Um, and then the history, you know, because it's mixed there from, from all the way from Sudan, Sub-Sahara. So there's a lot of this in the song, you know, uh, 
um, in the songs that they keep a history for not to forget because nothing was written down. So it's repeating it for the next ancestors to keep that as a, as a history. And I think it's the same in Kapwara. It's exactly the same uh, in the sense. And again, Kapwara, they say it's an African practice, but in hindsight, it was you know, created in Brazil of, from oppression. Um, and again, the Kapuristas, they're sort of, you know, the ancestors from slavery, but a lot of them converted to Catholic. And they used Catholic as a hidden, you know, there was a lot more African practice uh, using Canton Blue, which is, again is more closer to Yoruba. It's mm-hmm. more like a Yoruba uh, practice. But all these were really sort of created in this new spaces with all these things underneath them, as say slavery, religion, different countries, different cities. And I just thought it'd be great to highlight just points uh, between the two, uh, to try and to highlight the, the thing, but hopefully people see the documentary, you'll see similar similarity. Yeah, you talk about how they've become more rooted in popular culture. People know capoeira as a sport, people know Ornawa as a, as a music for entertainment, but looking at the mystical and ritualistic aspects of both and their history with enslaved people, I think that's really important to put into context, especially with the Black Lives Matter. Definitely, because, you know, um, I think what happens in, in this kind of situation is because it's got popular, and I would say Capoeira and Gnawa, and because it's such a strong, let's say we saw this on the music side, so they've been able to use this to survive, mm-hmm. to make it more accessible. Um, and I think if you look, a lot of things that's coming from slavery, like carnival, mm-hmm. you know, carnival, if you look at the history where. Now it's like carnival was popular. People want to understand how it started and where it got to. And Gnome you know, Couple is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It was hidden. People didn't, you know, they looked at it bad, uh, even within the community. You know, were religious. You know, they say it's not Muslim, it's not Catholic. But the power of, of, of both practices went beyond into mainstream. And the younger generation now have more opportunities because now they're traveling, they've got classes abroad, some making money, some, but there's still an element of protection of the practices within that. So yeah. it doesn't get watered down. So apart from the film, you also plan to present a live performance with uh, both the practitioners of Rnawa and Capoeira here in Sharjah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, this is really, um, uh, this is the fun part. Yeah. <laughs> I think... You know, because I filmed in Brazil and, and, and Morocco, uh, for me, this is a beautiful moment for them to come and meet here, see the film for the first time. I said, I'm not going to show it <laughs> until then. But also for them to meet and uh, perform and to finish off the projects in a positive way, in a sense. So for me, this is a, this is like a special moment that, that, um, that I'm kind of looking forward to. Uh, and I think uh, also to go away from from the practice and it's about more entertainment in a sense that's where it's going to be yeah also with some workshops and yeah now the idea is to do workshops also I would love if there's like a conversation between the masters to the public not me to try to explain about their practices because it's, uh, there's uh, lots of layers that I, I wouldn't be able to explain mm-hmm. um, and I want them to also sort of teach people about their ways and their lifestyle. I mean, as I'm only highlighting a mm-hmm. small percentage. So I think it's a good opportunity as well to, to try and to have something like that for, for people to actually ask questions, though, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a great opportunity yeah. for our communities here. 
So what are you hoping our viewers will take away from the work? What are you looking to make visible in your photographs and your films in general? Uh, I think, you know, when, when we started talking about these projects, you know, I, I know about the Benali, about arts, you know, so it's more artistic. This is, I suppose, a little bit different because I'm doing a documentary in the Benali, which is kind of, you know, I know there's documentaries get shown in Benalis and there might be different expectations from, from me to show something. Um, but for me, this is really personal. So I just wanted to show something personal, part of my journey. And to really just highlight some elements of the two places where if people do like anything, they will have to go and do research to go deeper. Mm. Um, and so really, that's what I'd like to kind of get across. Thank you for joining us on Biennial Bites, Hassan. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view Hassan's work online, click on the link in the show notes. To see the film in person, please visit Beta Sarkal. See you there. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel wherever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Art. <laughs>